You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, Finished, The End of the World and Our Way of Living in It. In this series, we see that the powers and principalities of this world are finished, and our depraved way of living in this world is finished. Christ leads us into a new way of being human, and eventually, an entirely new creation. Now, hear the word of the Lord. As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings, but he responded, Do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? Jesus told them, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Messiah. They will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but all this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, church. Peace be with you. It's good to see everybody. Hello to those here. Hello to everyone at home. Uh, My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is good to be back with you guys. Uh, This is my first Sunday back after my my longest break from preaching that I've ever had, and so figure out if I can still do it or not. Uh, But um, I'm very thankful to, to be with you guys this morning for a number of reasons. Back in the fall, last year was tough. Amen. Anybody? Anybody? Tough um, uh, for for a lot of reasons. And back in the early fall, one of my closest friends. I'm thankful to have a couple of friends that know me and I've known them for 20 years. And and one of my friends said, "You're not right right now. You're angrier than you normally are. Um, you don't feel right. Some something's off in you. I think you need some time away." And I was like, "I don't know, man. You're kind of an idiot. I don't know." And uh, so I I talked to my therapist which I have a therapist. Um, I talked to my therapist. He's like, you seem angrier. You're not right. You should take some time away. And then my wife was like, you don't seem right. I wonder if you could get some time away. And so, you know, when pretty much everybody that is closest to me and, and loves me the most says, you're, you, you're not you. Something's not right. You, you need some space. You should listen to them. And so I, I came to our elders and asked if I could have some space sometime in the next six months to try to... Um, mourn some of the difficulties of the last year, uh, refresh, recalibrate, those, those kinds of things. And I'm grateful that uh, that wasn't much of a conversation with our, our pastors here. They were generous uh, to me, grateful to them, grateful to our staff uh, that carried the load. Uh, I'm, it's kind of weird in terms of job security, I guess, but I'm really grateful to be part of a church that doesn't really need me or that it's not like everything falls apart when I go away. And so I'm just really, I'm really thankful for the space. I'm thankful to be a part of this church um, I'm thankful for a God that cares more about the health of our souls than our productivity, um, that he cares that we learn how to live as his sons and his daughters and not just how much we get done for him. Um, so I'm, I'm thankful to be back. Uh, and in all, of the, in all of that space, um, today's text, really all of Matthew 24, is one that, that came to mind often, um, but it wasn't you know, like I knew this was my first sermon coming back, and so I'm going to chew on this text for a month and get, just really come back with a doozy of a sermon or something. It was, uh, it was so personally piercing uh, 
to me as I tried to mourn, as I tried to pursue refreshment in the Lord. And, and so I thought it would offer us a good opportunity to both, you know, kind of walk through a big chunk of this chapter and, and share some of what I feel like the Lord's been um, revealing to me. Uh, so I want to show you some of the ways God's been going to work on me with this passage. Verse, uh, verse 1, I find personally hilarious. Uh, so it says, as Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. Uh, part of the reason I think this is hilarious is Jesus has been to the temple before, and also there's some awareness that he is the son of God. This is literally his temple. And they're like, Jesus, look, the temple. And, you know, I just kind of envisioned Jesus like your kid showing you around your master bedroom or something like that. So yeah, I'm pretty sure I know what's going on here. Uh, So that just kind of is a detail that tickles me a little bit. Um, But also what's happening here is is incredibly human. Uh, All of us do what the disciples are doing here. When, when we're around a place we love with someone we love, we want to show them around that place. Whether it's a restaurant, whether it's uh, going to Disney, or whether it's a new house, you know, we all love showing people around the, the places that we love. And so for the disciples here, uh, really any Jewish person at the time, the temple was literally the most important building in the whole world. Some of that was because of the physical beauty of it. It would the size, the scale, the complex, the materials it was made out of. It was, it would have just been breathtaking to view. It, it would have looked like it was on fire in the right light, just from the the light, the the glowing nature of all of the materials when light hits it. It would have been breathtaking in its beauty, uh, but it was also literally for them the presence of God on earth. If you want to go see God go to the temple. And so the disciples are showing someone they love these buildings that they love. And I don't think in any way that's a bad desire. I think it's good to love places. I think it's good to love important places. It's good to show your children where their their grandparents are buried, to show them where you got married, to show them where they were born, or any number of these kinds of things. It's it's good to have important places that matter to us. Sharing places we love with people we love, it's, it's a way we feel loved. It's a way we feel known. It's not bad. But watch what Jesus says to them. But he responded, do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not stone will be left on top of another. As beautiful and important as you think all of this is, it will not last The lesson for me in this, just these first couple of verses, maybe the invitation would be a better way to put it. Um, I feel like the Lord was calling me to learn to hold the things I love more loosely, not to stop loving them, but to recognize the temporary nature of them. It's not bad to love a place or a thing or to share that place or that thing, but it seems to me we need to learn how to hold it loosely. What does that mean? There's no verse that talks about holding it loosely. Um, What comes to mind, what I think Jesus is pushing on the disciples here is to learn how to say, I'm okay without it. Um, When we hold things too tightly, they they become inseparable to what we think a good life is or what our life is. And to me, as Jesus is pointing to these temple buildings, he's saying, guys, you realize this is temporary. Open your hands around it. That sounds good. Um, it, it, seem, it seems to me that most of us, myself included, 
we're better, we believe better than we live. Do you know what I mean by that? Every preacher I know preaches better than they live. It's easier to believe things than it is to live them. It's easier to believe. Here's just a simple one. It's easier to believe that Jesus is right when he says it's better to give than to receive. Um, But I'm guessing, you know, when we got our Trump bucks or when we're going to get our Biden bucks, maybe in a couple of weeks, um, that we're not like, ooh, what can I give away with this? You know, for me, it was like Christmas bonus. Should I do a stereo? Should I put it in savings? Should I pay down the, you know what I mean? Like when it comes to brass tacks to actually do that, it's easy in a gathering to sing songs like, I'll go where you send me. And it's a lot harder to get up and go when he sends you. It's harder to live than it is to believe. And I think there are many reasons for this. There are many reasons why it's difficult for us to hold things loosely. I think what happens next This is one that really messed me up, you guys. This reveals a reason that I think we don't know how to talk about very often. It may not seem obvious at first. So verse three, it says, Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return in the end of the world? Uh, So just follow the flow of the passage here. Hey, Jesus, look at all these beautiful buildings. This is that building. This is that building. We love this place. This is amazing. Jesus says, hey, all of this is going to get destroyed. And then the disciples come to him later with the question about the end of the world. Can someone show me in verses 1 and 2 where Jesus talked about the world ending? See what I'm saying? Can you show me where Jesus promised that the temple would be destroyed as the world is ending? It's, It's not what he says. He says the temple will be destroyed. Do you see how tightly the disciples are holding on to this idea of the temple in this place that they, I want to say this slowly, they cannot imagine a world or a scenario where the temple is destroyed, but the world is not. Does that make sense? This place means so much to them. They cannot envision a life without it. So if the temple is going to be destroyed, then clearly the world is going to be destroyed. This is a failure of imagination here. Do you see that? They could not imagine a life without this thing they held so tightly here. And I'm convinced it's difficult for us to hold things loosely because we have profoundly weak imaginations. We are rigid people. It's right or it's wrong. You're in or you're out. We prefer to live in our thinking minds where we can make everything fit into neat categories that's easily understood. You go there, and you go there, and this is here, and this is here. So we cannot imagine letting that thing go. It puts us into a dangerous territory that we don't even know what it will look like. So just think for a second. Maybe there's a doctrine that you believe in. God is sovereign. Let the church say amen. Amen. God is sovereign, which means he is fundamentally in control. Not once in the history of the cosmos has God been caught off guard. So we all just amen that pretty strongly. Now, you don't have to amen on this. Just just go with your own soul here, unless you want to raise your hand, I guess. Has anybody in the last year struggled with anxiety? Well, just believe God's sovereign harder. It's not a doctrinal problem that we have anxiety. 
when we when we do not embody a belief, when we do not body, embody or experience a truth, there's a failure of imagination going on somewhere. If there is something that you cannot let go of, if there is a habit that you cannot break free from, it is highly likely you have a failure of imagination. So the invitation for me at first came, learn to hold things more loosely. And then as I was reflecting on this interaction at the beginning between Jesus and the, and the disciples, I believe there was an invitation to press more deeply into the world of the imagination. To, to pursue beauty and simply experience it rather than having to explain it. I, I thought about you know, a Disney fireworks show. I'm, I know I've got a Disney problem. Judge me in your heart. Um, and... Uh, you know, they have this fireworks show at the Magic Kingdom one night, and I've seen it three or four times, and every time I find myself initially wanting to figure out how they're doing it. Um, how are they timing it? How are they making the castle look this way? And that's me trying to keep up here in my mind and understand it, rather than just experiencing what is happening. Maybe you have a favorite piece of music. Would you rather have someone sit down and, and tell you about the model of cello and the kind of strings that Yo-Yo Ma is playing here, or would you rather listen to it and let it wave over you? Um, when you think about going back into a restaurant, do you want someone to sit down and explain to you the reverse sear technique and how you know, rosemary and butter mix along with a whatever? He's like, man, let me eat my steak. To enjoy a great song, a simple sunrise, an ordinary gift like a soft blanket that's easy to overlook. So why is this so important? Do you realize what this whole Christianity thing is about? It's the claim that the infinite creator God of the universe has made himself knowable to a rebellious creation. And more than that, he's invited us into his family and calls us sons and daughters. And the scriptures say there's a way we can participate in that life with him that's mysterious. It's hard to define and explain. We know that God is a God of beauty. We know he can do more than we ask or imagine. So we need to learn how to experience the mystery and the wonder of the good gifts that he's given to us because that teaches our souls how to believe that God is bigger, better, and will do more than we can ask or imagine. One of the, one of the biggest lessons I've learned in my time away was that my vision of the world is far too small. My vision of what God will do in me, in my family, in this church, in this world is far too limited. I need a greater imagination so that I can have a greater experience of God's nearness so I can learn to hold things more loosely. And what comes after this is an intensely strong appeal to the imagination. He's talking about the end of the world because his disciples asked him about the end of the world. And so in this passage, and then into Matthew 25, he's talking about two distinct realities, the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. And now he's setting some expectations about what the end of the world will be like. So I'm going to go over this kind of quickly because it's a, you know, 30 verses or whatever. In verse four to five, he says, we should expect tricks. He says, don't let anyone mislead you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. 
So how do we know the end of the world is coming? People will come in the name of Jesus or proclaiming to be Jesus and they will deceive people. They will lead them astray. Expect temptations to fear. Verse six, you will hear of wars, threats of wars, but don't panic. That's the temptation to fear. That's the temptation to be afraid. It's gonna look scary out there. Expect the temptation to be hated. You'll be hated all over the world because you are my followers. People will find out that you're Christians and they will hate you for it. Expect some people to fall away. Many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. Surprisingly, maybe, he says, expect the church to grow. The good news, that's the gospel about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. Expect loss and suffering and tears. There will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. So he says, you want to know what the end of the world is going to be like? It's going to, it's going to look like this. And I will tell you from where I stand, this is one man's opinion. This is me speaking, not the Lord. I think, I think there have been very few verses that have been abused in the American church in the last hundred years as these ones have been. Their misuse has caused, and I mean this, untold chaos and division in the church and untold panic and fear in the hearts and souls of God's people. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to have an imagination when you're terrified? So again, Jesus here is laying out end times expectations. And if you, if you look at the, the history of the United States, since our inception, we've loved to have an enemy. We've loved the vision of the man riding out on his horse to face the enemy, these betrayers or these awful people or, or whatever. And we love having a fight to win. We love being the hero. We love having a great enemy to confront. So that kind of American culture has been married to an end times obsession in the evangelical church. So what have we done? We've looked into culture, obsessed with an enemy, looking for a fight, and claimed that this enemy is evidence of what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 24. So what does that mean? Rise up, Christian. Take arms. Fight the culture war. Defeat this enemy. I'll give you a quick hundred years of history. This is a little bit reductionistic, okay? So I, I acknowledge this is not perfect history that I'm about to give to you. In the 1920s, and you can go read sermons about this. You can see this in church history books. Uh, there, were, there was widespread belief that this man named Charles Darwin was the Antichrist because he taught this thing called evolution, which denied creation. This is obviously evidence that people are going to be led astray and the world is coming to an end. We must fight evolution with everything that we have. In the 1930s, it was socialism. Socialism is antichrist. It is satanic influence. We have to rise up and fight against socialism. In the 1940s, and again, I'm talking about from the perspective of the church, we, the rise of national socialism, which is Nazism, Germany, 
We have to rise up and fight. This is the end of the world. They are coming. In the 1950s, National Socialism gave way to the fear of communism. We must stop and fight the communists. Rise up, church. Communism is antichrist. It is Satan, and they're going to come and destroy us. In the 1960s, it was socialism again, and they brought along their friends, the feminists. And so now it's, you know, women want to work, and they want to vote, and that's Satan is coming, and we have to fight against that, and the world is going to hell. In the 70s and 80s, it was homosexuality and public schooling. In the 2000s, it was militant Islam. In the 2010s, it was President Obama and and the Clintons. And now in 2020, it's Black Lives Matter and critical race theory and cultural Marxism. And I want to be really clear. I'm not saying any of those people or any of those philosophies or systems are good. I'm not saying any of those are compatible with Christianity. I'm not saying any of those are what Christians should be for. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm pleading with you to see is that for more than a hundred years, evangelical Christians have said, look at this thing. This is the thing. The world is ending. We're doomed. We have to fight. Have you thought about the clarifying power of the world ending this afternoon? If we knew that Jesus was coming back at 2 p.m., how many things would you stop caring about? A lot. There's incredibly clarifying power of having an enemy, an imminent threat. And we've had this imminent threat wartime mentality in evangelical Christianity in the United States for 100 plus years at this point. If Christianity takes on a perpetual wartime mentality, then the ordinary rhythms of Christian life become secondary at best. What's happened in evangelical circles now is mature Christianity is no longer defined by the fruit of the Spirit. Have you you seen that? You know, gentleness is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Patience is one of the fruit of the Spirit. And instead, what becomes the hallmark of Christianity? Militant, aggressive, outspoken warriors. The way of Christ for many has become the way of a sword, the way of attack, the way of power, and the way of aggression. And as far as I can tell, the church has never moved forward from places of power. It's moved forward from places of oppression, places of marginalization, because God, I believe it says somewhere, will use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. After, here's the simplest way I can put this. After a hundred years of all of this, it seems to me that American evangelicalism is known more for who we hate than how we love. I, I find that statement almost airtight. And that's not to say all evangelical Christians do is hate. We do amazing, amazing works with hospitals, with disaster relief. I mean, there's so many good, wonderful, beautiful things that the evangelical church does, but are we not known more for how we hate than how we love, than who we hate than how we love? And so I would just plead with, with you all here and whoever's watching at home, pay attention to this kind of talk. Pay attention to the voices claiming that a new enemy has risen, that Antichrist has finally appeared that the church must rise up and fight. Pay attention 
to the repeating pattern of the evangelical church for the last hundred years. This is the end. Here is our enemy. We have to fight. Again, I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying there are no enemies of the church. I'm not saying there are not dangerous ideas that we should oppose or disagree with. What I am saying is that the constant fear-mongering that has often appealed to these verses, the reading the tea leaves of the end of the world into every current cultural situation, has only damaged our witness as Christ's church and riddled our souls with divisive, fear-filled speculations. It's killed our imaginations, and it's kept us from holding things loosely as we ought. Listen to an explicit warning Jesus gives later in this chapter about the people who do this. If anyone tells you, please listen, this is Jesus speaking now. Look, here is the Messiah, or there he is. Don't believe it. For false messiahs, false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I have warned you about this ahead of time. If, this is, I'm just going to try to be real simple. If someone says they know when the world is going to end, they are either deceived themselves or they are deceiving you. They've been lied to or they are lying. If someone tells you Jesus has returned, do not believe them. If someone speculates into every detail of modern life as evidence fulfilling these passages, do not believe them. In the scriptures, you get one wrong prophecy and then you get killed. You get to be wrong one time and then you get killed. Do not be deceived, church. Do not be deceived for these sensationalist speculators. Jesus has warned us about them ahead of time. Step back with me for a second on this passage. One author that I love who's helped me in this series of Matthew, he wrote a little limerick for his students when he teaches through Matthew. This is how he describes our end time expectations. He says, tricks and fears, hates, falls, missions, tears, and clearly normal things, my dears. Maybe that last part seems weird to you if you haven't been reading Matthew 24 this week. So listen, has there, has there ever been a time post-Eden where people haven't been deceiving one another? Can you remember that time where there wasn't a good reason to be afraid of something? Can you remember a time where Christians were not hated somewhere in the world? Can you remember a time when the message of the gospel was not going forth in building the church? Can you remember a time in the history of humanity when life has not been hard and filled with tears? You see what I'm saying right now? The things that Jesus are describing as hallmarks of the end times are so profoundly normal. Not saying they're okay. Not saying we should celebrate that it is this way. There's nothing unusual about what Jesus is describing here. We'll talk about this some more next week, but at the end of this chapter, he compares the end of the world to Noah's day. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. Listen, in those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. 
People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all the way. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man returns. He's saying, listen, when it all goes down, it's going to feel just like it did right before the flood, which means you'll be at a banquet, there'll be weddings going on, people will be going to work. It will feel normal. Tricks and fears, hates, falls, missions, tears, clearly normal things, my dears. This is how life in a broken world will feel for most of us most of the time. We must stop with the endless speculation that now is the end of all things. Real personally for me, there's an invitation to stop speculating so much on things that I simply cannot know. An invitation to see the goodness and power of this ordinary moment in time. There are new challenges for us individually, but not new challenges for the church corporately. Jesus has prepared us. There is no need for the constant fear-mongering. There's no need to hunt for an enemy or claim that some person is the Antichrist. No need to produce rigid understandings of mysterious realities. Instead, we serve Christ here and now, filled with sanctified imaginations. We're going to talk more about what that looks like next week. But the big lesson of Matthew 24 and Jesus' teachings on the end of the world is it's simply this. He's not so concerned that we know when the world will end, but rather how we will live knowing that it will end. The lesson of this passage is about us living now, knowing that we have a world that is passing away. And so, because it's passing away, we try to cultivate a, a deeper, fuller, more powerful imagination so that we can hold things more loosely and learn to follow Jesus from a place of peace, obeying him in the goodness of our everyday rhythms of, of the ordinary life that, that he has given you. And I don't, I don't know if you guys know this, but Southern Indiana is home to two worldwide end times cults, uh, people who are obsessed with the end of the world. Maybe you grew up leading, reading the Left Behind series. Um, so maybe you're still itching like, well, what is Sojourn's position on the end of the world? Um, can we just talk a little bit about the end of the world? Like, let's get into the juicy details. Uh, so I'll tell you, I'm, I'm about to lay it out for you, crystal clear. And I promise you, if you listen and receive what I'm about to say, I'm going to read a piece of the Bible to you now. Um, you will never have to read an end times book again. You will not have to get out any charts. You will not have to make any timelines. And when people come and warn you that the end of the world is upon you, you can say, maybe just in your spirit, you're a liar and I don't have to listen to you. Maybe that's harsh. Sanctify yourselves and respond. This is just crushed so many people, you guys. So Jesus, thankfully, I'm not going to explain it. I'll let Jesus explain it. Verse 27, he says, as the lightning flashes in the east and shines to the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. You don't need a discernment blogger or a prophetic pastor to explain lightning. Lightning is not a mysterious event. You ever been close to lightning? Whoa, lightning. <laughs> Thank you, Judah. Verse 30. The sign that the Son of Man is coming 
will appear in the heavens. There will be deep mourning among all the peoples on the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So, how do we know the world is ending? King Jesus will appear in the skies with power and great glory. It's not the end of the world unless Jesus is in the skies. That is the biblical position on the end times. The, the world is ending. Is Jesus up? Show me where Jesus is. And you notice it won't say that we'll have to do all of these efforts to spread the word. He will appear in the skies. We won't need television broadcasts showing it because Christ himself will shine like lightning bolts in the sky. There will be no mystery. It's not the end of the world unless Jesus is in the skies and anyone who says otherwise is telling you lies. So every week, Jesus invites our, us to root ourselves in a mysterious reality that he has come, he has brought us near to himself, and he is coming again. It's not purely a cognitive exercise where we remember stuff. He invites us to participate in, in a ritual so we can experience a mystery. We remember something true, that Jesus' body was given for us, his blood was shed for us, to reconcile us to God, and then we experience that mystery through the Lord's Supper. So we call our minds to the night Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread, he gave thanks for it, and broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, when the meal was over, he took a cup of wine. He said, this is the, the cup of the new covenant, which seals your relationship with God, sealed with the shedding of my blood, Drink this in remembrance of me. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.